Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy, and this week's podcast, an example of high returns to publicly funded R&D. So in last week's newsletter, we looked at a thought experiment by Jones and Summers that pretty convincingly argued the average return on a dollar of R&D is really high. And the implication is that we should be spending a lot more on R&D. But the devil's in the details. How exactly should you increase your R&D spending? All right, so today let's go look at just one kind of program that seems to work and I think would be an excellent candidate for more funds. And that's the U.S.'s Small Business Innovation Research Program, SBIR, and the European Union's Small Medium Enterprise, or SME, instrument, which was itself modeled on the SBIR program. So both of these programs, the SBIR and the SME instrument program, are competitive grant competitions where small businesses submit proposals for R&D grants from the public sector. Each program consists of two phases, where the first phase involves a lot less money than the second. For example, in the U.S. program, a phase one award is typically about $150,000, and in phase two, it's roughly a million dollars. For the European program, phase one is only 50,000 euros, and phase two is anywhere from half a million euros to two and a half million euros. In the U.S., firms apply for phase one first and then phase two, but in the EU, firms can apply for just either one straight away. And broadly speaking, the money is intended to be used for R&D type projects. And they're pretty competitive. In the U.S., an application to the SBIR program run by the Department of Energy, which is what uh, we have a lot of data on, is typically going to take a full-time employee one to two months to complete. And even then, you've got about a 15% chance of winning a phase one award. And if you win that, you've got about a 50% chance of winning the phase two award, which is like an overall chances of around 8%. In the EU's program, the probability of winning phase one, that's 50,000 euros, is about 8%. And the big award phase two, just about a 5% of applicants win. So both programs involve the government attempting to pick winning ideas and then giving the winners money to fund R&D. So how well do they work? You know, does the money actually generate innovations? Uh, Does it get a good return on investment? because, you know, we think this should be possible. So two recent papers look at this question using the same method. Howell, 2017, looks at the Department of Energy's SBIR program, which dispersed $884 million over 30 years. And another paper by Santillari and others from 2020, which is actually a working paper, looks at the European SME instrument program, which dispersed in the studied time they studied about 1.3 billion euros over 2014 to 2017. Each of these papers has got access to details on all of the applicants to the program, not just the people who win. So that means they can follow the trajectory of businesses that apply and then they get a grant, as well as those that apply, but then they fail to get a grant. Now, to assess the impact of money on innovation, it's not enough to just compare the winners to the losers, because the government isn't just randomly handing out money. It's actively trying to sniff out the best ideas. So if SBIR and SME instruments are any good at picking promising ideas, then the winning applicants are probably going to have done better than the losers, even if they hadn't received any R&D funds, because somebody judged them to be promising ideas. But the way these programs are administered have a few quirks that allow researchers to estimate the causal impact of actually getting money. So during the period studied, each program held lots of smaller competitions devoted to a specific technology or a sector. For example, the Department of Energy might solicit proposals for projects related to, say, solar-powered water desalination. Within each of these competitions, proposals are scored by technical experts, and then they get ranked from best to worst. And after this ranking is made, the overall budget is drawn up for all these different little competitions, and these overall budgets are made without reference to the quality of the applications received. And then the best projects get funded until the money runs out. 
So for example, in the Department of Energy, it might decide, all right, we got 11 proposals for the solar-powered water desalination topic, but uh, we can actually only fund three. And so then the top three get their money, and the fourth doesn't get anything. The important thing is that for applicants right around that cutoff, although there's a big change in the amount of money received, there shouldn't really be a big change in the quality of the proposals. That is, although we don't have perfect randomization, we have something pretty close. Proposals on either side of that cutoff for funding differ only a little bit in the quality of their proposals, but they experience a huge difference in their ability to execute on their proposals because some of them get money and some of them don't. It's a pretty close estimate of the causal impact of getting that money. So each paper looks at a couple measures of impact. And a natural place to start when you're evaluating the impact of small business innovation is patents. And in each of these papers, patents are weighted by how many citations they end up receiving. Uh, And I should, as an aside, citations, we've talked about how they're problematic measures of knowledge flows, but they do seem to be pretty good as a way of measuring the value of patents. Better patents seem to get more citations. So in the text, I'm just going to call them patents, but you should think of them as patents adjusted for some kind of quality, so sort of a constant unit of patent. And the papers produce some nice figures, which you should check out in the paper, where you can kind of see the number of patents produced uh, based on how a proposal is ranked. And then there's this cutoff, you know, and above the cutoff, suddenly we see a higher, you know, a jump in the number of patents. And the figures sort of nicely illustrate uh, the issues we're talking about. You can see in some of them, as we worried, that proposals that are ranked more highly do tend to get more patents. For example, in the Department of Energy's SBIR program, even projects that don't get funding do tend to have more and more patents the more highly they're ranked. And you can kind of draw a line, it looks pretty constant, but then there's this jump right around when they get funding. And, you know, Howell estimates that getting one of these grants increases patenting by about 30%. And Santillary et al., they get similar results. They estimate that a 30 to 40% increase in patenting happens when you get a phase two grant. So moving on, to the extent we're happy with patents as a way to measure innovation, we've already shown that the program basically manages to buy innovations. But the papers actually document a whole bunch of different indicators that you would all think are associated with a healthy, flourishing, innovative business. So for example, if you get an SBIR grant, that's going to double the probability that you get venture capital funding. Uh, If you win one of the European versions, that's going to triple the probability that you get private equity funding. If you win one of the U.S. grants, your annual revenue usually increases by, you know, over a million dollars. And if you win against a sort of average of two million, if you win one of the European ones, they show that the growth rate of the companies go up 50 to 100 percent. The growth rate of their employment goes up 20 to 30 percent. And the chances that they fail falls significantly. All right. So winning money helps firms. You know, is that really surprising? Do we need scientists telling us that? Well, in fact, it's not guaranteed. There's another paper by Wang Lee and Furman from 2017 that looks uses the exact same kind of methodology, and they look at a program like this in China, uh, the InnoFund program, but they don't find in that case that the money makes a statistically significant difference. There's a lot of different reasons that I won't go into here about why that could be the case, but the main point is simply that you shouldn't take for granted even some seemingly obvious result like giving people R&D grant helps firms. But still, even if we find that R&D grants help firms, that doesn't necessarily imply they're a good use of money. We want to know the return on this R&D investment. And that's a hard question to answer because although we know the cost of these programs, 
it's hard to put a solid monetary value on the benefits that arise from them. And we would need to know that if we're going to calculate a benefit to cost ratio. So instead, let's take a different tack. One thing we can measure reasonably well is whether firms get a patent. So let's just see how many patents these programs generate per R&D dollar and compare that to the number of patents per R&D dollar that the private sector gets. Because if we assume the private sector knows what it's doing and can get a decent return on investment, well, that gives us a benchmark against which we can assess the performance of sort of these government programs. So how many patents per dollar does the private sector get? Well, if you just take U.S. patent grants from domestic companies over the period 2010 to 2017, and you divide that by the R&D spent by these companies in the same years, you, you know, if you do this year by year, you pretty consistently get a ratio of around half of a patent for every million dollars of R&D. And that's about the same ratio as uh, other people have found when they just zoom in on, say, like top seven tech companies. So to be clear, my point's not that a patent costs $2 million worth of R&D, because R&D doesn't just go into patents. One report found that in 2008, only about 20% of companies that did R&D reported getting a patent. So let's take that as like a benchmark and suppose that only 20% of inventions get patented. Well, in that case, we can think of this as telling us that for every $2 million in R&D you spend, you get five, say, innovations. And of those five, one of them gets patented. Now, as long as the R&D grant recipients we're studying have a similar ratio between innovation and patenting as other U.S. R&D performing firms, then if we look at patents per R&D dollar, you know, that's an okay benchmark for the productivity of R&D. And if you don't think it's an, if you have a lot of objections, you can check out the newsletter. I have some extra defense of this buried at the end of the paper, sort of in an extra credit section. But I'm not going to do that in the podcast. We're going to move on. So the question is, do these government programs also generate patents at a rate similar to half of a patent for every million dollars spent? And the answer there is yes, they do. This isn't actually something that either of the papers calculates directly, but you can back out estimates from their results using a method described in the appendix of the next paper we're going to talk about, which is by Myers and Lanahan. Myers and Lanahan estimate Howell's results imply that the Department of Energy's SBIR program gets about 0.8 to 1.3 patents for every million dollars. If you apply that method to the range of estimates in the Santillary et al. paper studying the EU system, and you convert everything out of euros back into dollars, you get something in the range of you know close to 0.7 patents for every million dollars. Um, and again, if you want to know where I come up with that, check out the newsletter buried in the sort of bottom section. In either case, that compares pretty favorably with a rough estimate around half of a patent for every million dollars in R&D that the U.S. private sector as a whole gets. So that's reassuring, but it's not exactly the kind of thing we're interested in. As I talked about at the outset, we are kind of motivated by this thought experiment by Jones and Summers that implied R&D is this really good investment, and once you take into account all of the social benefits uh, of R&D. And what we have here is evidence that the SBIR and the SME instrument programs can probably match the private sector in terms of figuring out how to wisely spend R&D dollars to purchase innovations. And frankly, that seems plausible to me that governments with technical experts could do about as well as the private sector. But these papers don't tell us much about the benefits that accrue from these R&D investments that aren't captured 
by the grant recipients and go beyond the patents that the grant recipients get. And that's what Myers and Lanahan's 2021 paper is about. What they would like to see is how giving R&D money to different technology sectors leads to more patents in that sector by grant recipients, as well as other impacts on patenting more generally. For example, suppose we're going to give a million dollars to a couple of firms that work on solar-powered water desalination. How many new solar water patents do we get from those grant recipients? Now, what about solar water patents from just anybody? And what about patents that aren't actually about solar-powered water desalinization at all? Like how they're going to look at the Department of Energy's SBIR program, but they need to use a different quirk of the SBIR system to figure out the the value of R&D dollars, because they're not comparing firms that get funding to firms that don't. They're comparing entire technology fields that get more money to fields that get less money. So instead, they rely on the fact that some U.S. states have programs that match SBIR funding with local funds. And importantly, the Department of Energy doesn't take that into account when deciding how to dole out its funds. For example, in 2006, North Carolina began partially matching the funds received by SBIR winners in the state. So if a bunch of winning applicants in solar technology happened to reside in, say, North Carolina in 2008, instead of, say, South Carolina in 2008, or North Carolina in 2005, then those recipients get their funds partially matched by the state, and solar technology research as a field gets this unexpected windfall of extra R&D dollars just by the lucky virtue of where these guys happen to be located. So what they end up with is something close to random R&D money drops for different kinds of technology. So Myers and Lanahan use variation in this unexpected windfall money to generate estimates of the return on R&D dollars. And for this to work, you have to believe that there's not going to be any systematic differences between SBIR applicants that reside in states that have matching programs and those that don't. And they do present some evidence that this is the case. But there's one more hurdle still before we can go forward. You know, you can crudely measure innovation by just counting patents. And with some difficulty, you can come up with an estimate of more or less random R&D allocations to different technologies based on this state matching stuff. But if you want to see how the one affects the other, you have to link patents to SBIR technology areas. And so Myers and Lanahan accomplished this with natural language processing. For every SBIR grant competition, they analyze the text of the competition description and identify the patent technology categories whose patents are textually most similar to this description. So when, say, solar technology gets a big windfall of R&D money, they can see what happens to the number of patents in patent technology categories that historically have been textually close to the DOE description of what it's looking for. And this is also how they measure the broader impact of SBIR money on other technologies. When solar gets a big windfall, they can see, well, what happens to the number of patents in technology categories that aren't solar, but are kind of close to solar technology, at least as measured by their text. Okay, so that's what they do. But what do they find? Well, they find more money for a technology means more patents for that technology. So in the newsletter, there's this figure of kind of a scatter plot, where on the horizontal axis, we've got a measure of the funding they get, and on the vertical axis, a measure of how much patenting is going on. And each dot is one of these different technology areas. And the figure nicely illustrates the importance of doing that extra work of trying to estimate windfall funding and sort of quasi-random funding. 
this figure has basically like it's like superimposed two scatter plots on top of each other. Uh, one of them corresponds to just the raw funding they get, no trying to adjust by all this fancy windfall funding stuff. And the other one is their attempt to get just the quasi-random funding. So if you draw like a linear trend line just on the raw data, the naive, just add up all the money to this sector, it's really steep up and to the right. More money gives you a lot more patents. But that effect is biased by the fact that technologies that get the most money were already promising technologies. That's why they got the money. There's, if you look at the other scatter plot that's superimposed on there, you get a upward to the right line too, but it's flatter. And it shows that basically, hey, more money still gets you more patents, but not as strong as if you just sort of look at it naively and don't try to do all this work to isolate the, the random elements. But it's this second one, the flat one, that's going to be more informative about what happens if we actually just increase cash to a bunch of different sectors. All that's to say that using estimates based on this windfall funding, they find an extra million dollars is associated with recipients of grants getting about 0.5 additional patents. And that's pretty typical, or at least that's what I've argued, for all of the U.S. private sector. But the more important finding is that that's only a fraction of the overall benefits. So when there's more R&D in a given technology sector, we're typically going to think that that creates new opportunities for R&D from other firms because they can learn from the discoveries of the first firm. And indeed, spillovers in other newsletters I've talked about are often just as important or even more important than the direct benefits to the R&D performer of R&D. So Myers and Lanahan get at this in two ways. First, they look for an impact of R&D funding not only on the patent technology classes that are closest to the SBIR's description of its competition, but also ones that are more textually distant. And typically, a bigger share of the extra patent activity comes from classes that are not the closest fields, but are still closer than like just a random patent picked at, at random. Second, they look at patents held by people who aren't SBIR recipients themselves, but maybe live close or farther away from these recipients. So if you look only at SBIR recipients, as I've said, an extra million dollars tends to produce an extra 0.5 patents, an extra half of a patent. But if you look at patents belonging to everyone in the same county as an SBIR recipient, and these are people who it would be quite easy for them to sort of learn about the innovations these recipients came up with, an extra million there tends to produce an extra 1.4 patents across a wide range of different technology fields. And if you look at all patents in the whole world that get taken out in the U.S. but have inventors from anywhere, an extra million pounds tends to produce an extra three patents. Now, if all those patents are equally good, that's going to imply that when the SBIR gives out money, the innovation outputs created by recipients are only a really small part of the overall effect, just half of one patent out of three total patents for every million dollars spent. But of course, patents are not all equally valuable. And it turns out when they look into this more, the ones created by the grant recipients tend to be more highly cited, for example, than the ones that right now we're attributing to knowledge spillovers. Still, Myers and Lanahan estimate that if you adjust for the quality of patents, half of the value generated by the SBIR grant is reflected in the patents of non-recipients who are working on different, but not too different, technologies. So, to sum up, We've got some good theoretical reasons to think the return on R&D is really high, at least on average. And now we've looked at a specific R&D 
program, or at least a specific kind of R&D program, that gives R&D grants to small firms. The grants are effective at funding innovation, and it seems to be that they're effective at about the same level as the private sector doing its own R&D. And if we try to assess the broader impact of that funding, we find that including social benefits leads to sort of twice the return as only focusing on the grant recipients, and that was already pretty good. This is altogether more evidence that we ought to be spending more on R&D. And lastly, we have good reason to think these effects can also be maintained if we scale up these programs. The design of these papers, Howell 2017 and Centillary et al. 2020, is premised on estimating the impact of R&D funding on firms that are right around the cutoff. So for the purposes of scaling up, that's great news. That's the estimate we want. Because if we increased funding, the firms that would get the extra money would be precisely the ones that are closest to the cutoff. Thanks, everyone. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.